This is a Founding Media Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Masters and Founders. This week, we are sitting down with Lewis Black. As one of the founders of the Austin Chronicle and the South by Southwest Festival, Lewis has had a hand in shaping what Austin is today. Lewis has also directed a documentary, executive produced a few films, and was a founding member of the Austin Film Society. Let's jump in and hear more about how Lewis came to be the king of Austin culture. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, really excited to chat with you because I'm kind of going down a similar path that you've already gone. So just <laughs> learning from you is 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 uh, going to be kind of my treat. Well, I did everything wrong, so I'm great to learn from. <laughs> I, I, I really be- truly believe that the reason we succeeded so well was in the first 10 years of the Chronicle. Everything wrong you could do, we did. Yeah. Mostly just once. Yeah. A couple of things twice and one thing three times. But usually, we, I mean... There's no better way to learn than make an idiot of yourself. It's it's an education. It know, is. Every time, I mean, every time uh, that you uh, hit your head against the wall, you're like, "Oop! I cut it out this way," and you just get more efficient. I had a, I had a real. I mean, this, I had a tough childhood in terms of learning, in terms of school. I was remarkable in other ways, but I've always been really grateful because I was used to failing. Yeah. And so, uh, if someone's used to failing, you can't stop them. What's what they're going to fail? <laughs> and I was, you know, I envied the kids who did really well in school when I was in school, and then afterwards, I thought. Thank God, because you know the, I didn't you know have any success until very late in the game, yeah. and uh, and so it, you know when we started the paper, I just assumed it'd fail. Everything I had ever done was a failure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I um, really was intrigued by the things that you have founded, and and I know I've just in my research I've only touched the tip of the iceberg of what you've done, but the Austin Chronicle, obviously, yeah. and then South by Southwest. So I want to I want to start with the Austin Chronicle. Like, what gave you the idea to, like, begin this periodical? Um, low self-esteem is a real plus for anything, and, and, and not taking yourself very seriously. So I, I actually, my friend um, Joe Dishner and Nick Barber decided to start the paper, and they approached me. I'm the first hire. When I, sometimes I redo my histories. Have you ever seen that book of photos from the Russian Revolution where it starts out like 40 commissars and ends up with just Stalin? Yeah. That's my ambition. Okay. I, when I tell these stories, no. Um, <laughs> but they approached me and, and I agreed. And then they they approached some other people. So six of us and started. We worked at the Daily Texan. Uh, the Daily Texan had a Monday entertainment supplement called Images. And it was not uncommon that Sunday, like two articles would fall out. And I would write one, and somebody, and Nick might write the other, or somebody else. And so we were really good at writing. We didn't edit, we didn't sell ads, we didn't have to deal with personal. But we figured we could do a publication because we could write, which turned out to be dim-witted. But um, so they approached us, and we spent uh, months talking about what it would be, yeah. and then launched in September of 1981. And I thought I'd be there about a year. You know, I thought, it would, and, and I, you know, I don't think I looked up for you know, a couple of years. And and during the second year, Nick and I tried to give it away. Mm-hmm. Um, literally, and, and uh, <laughs> in that process, discovered that nobody else really understood it but us. Right. And so I kind of became reconciled that I was going to be there for a while. 
And then in 87, we started South by, at which point I kind of reconciled that I was going to be in Austin for a while. Yeah. I mean, up until then, I'd been living different places yeah. when I came to Austin. And so that's what I thought I'd be doing. But, uh, you know, at a certain point, I realized, well, Chronicle's not going to move and South by's not going to move. Yeah. So the idea really was we worked for the Daily Texan. Mm-hmm. And we thought uh, the crime, Austin needed a paper like the Village Voice, which is the inspiration for all those papers. So we thought we'd start out really, I mean, we, we, our naivete is astonishing because yeah. we thought we'd start it and other people would take it over, you know, yeah, and we'd yeah. go do other things. And and that, that theory didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how, though, um, this happens. Every founder's got their own journey. And you st- what you think you start out with uh-huh. just evolves and changes, evolves and changes. And before you know it, you're like, well, this is not what I had in, in mind, but awesome. Yeah, I mean, you know, what John Lennon said, life is what you're, happens to you while you're waiting. Um, and I'm, the, I'm in that ridiculous position where this is, my life has been so much better than I ever would have imagined. And I mean, it isn't like I didn't dream of being a rock star. Right. I can't sing. I can't play an instrument. And, you know, and I, and I, but, but yeah, sure. But that wasn't real. In terms of what I was really going to do, I don't think I knew. Right. And I've ended up getting to do some incredible things with amazing people over a really long period of time. And the paper was the, kind of the first step in that direction. The real first step was... I came to UT to be a graduate English student because I had my undergraduate degree in English, mm-hmm. and I really hated it. Uh, um, and I grew up, when I was 12, I became really good friends with a guy named Leonard Malton, who then went on Entertainment Tonight and put out all those TV movie books and mm-hmm. was a famous film historian. And we're still friends, yeah. but he knew some people in the film department. So I went and I started hanging out there a little bit. This is 76, 77, and they said, you know, anytime you want to become a graduate film student, you can. And I thought, you don't study college. You don't study film in college. Right. Now I've been watching films fanatically since I was nine years old. Oh wow! And Len and I had been going to New York since we were twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing, I mean, we at, at that point I had seen, and, and we were watching Silence, and we were watching Serial Chat stuff nobody else was watching. We were just devoted. Yeah. And so I really knew my stuff. And another semester of his English graduate student, I realized I couldn't go on, so I transferred into the film. Mm-hmm. And when I became a film graduate student at UT. I became like an academic star for the first, and I had been an academic failure. I mean, I'd done horribly in school. Um, I hadn't done well in college. Um, and all of a sudden, like, now I knew this stuff, and I was very highly regarded. Important part of explaining this is my older sister, Annette, who's 18 months older, but a year ahead of me in school, is an academic superstar. She wow. went, she literally um, is, uh, her name has come up several times in conversation. If you talk about education on the East Coast, she ran Milton Academy. She ran a school, Columbia had started a school project that wasn't working, so they hired her. She shows up in all these places. Yeah. So, you know, I like when I was in junior high where you trained her classes, mm-hmm. the first day of class, they'd go, oh, Lewis Black, are you Annette Black's brother? Right. And and you just know it's going to be ugly. There was that shadow so, that you had to yeah. watch. Oh my and so God. I not only had done badly, but I had done badly in a context where it was obvious right. I was doing badly. Right. And then so when I started at UT, it was great. I mean, I, I was having a, a grand time. And then my friends just said, let's start this paper. And so um, I said, sure. And we started the paper. And then I was, you know, it, 10 years later, it was, you know, I woke up from... Um, it wasn't bad for ten years, except for me. I mean, I yeah. think I think things got better along the way, yeah. but I think it was really six or seven years. I tend to 
be focused and focused on the negative, yeah. on what, what's not working. Yeah. And so it was a long time before I appreciated that things were working. That's awesome. Well, one of the things that we like to highlight in the Masters and Founders show is really master of their craft. And at the end of the day, it could be academic, it could be just a founding a company or creative. And, and it, you know, you sharing that story about you and your sister reminds me of that photo where you've got the elephant and go, go climb this tree. Well, they're not going to do as well as a monkey doing that, but it's everybody teach their own, right? So in, in, in this case, you finding your path and your passion through the, a different course than, than, you know, academics. I, w- I was lucky. I, I um, I taught myself how to read in the second grade because I paid, I was terrible in school. I had no attention span. And I taught myself how to read because it was a summer program at the library where like it, 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 one year would be a train thing. Mm-hmm. So if you read 10 books, you got one stop in the train, ten, another 10, two stops, or it'd be like an ocean voyage. Yeah. And my sister did it one year and got all – and if you just got one stop, they gave you ice cream. <laughs> and my sister did it and, of course, went all the way. Yeah. But the next year I took out 10 books and – Bought them and they make you go over the books to make sure you've read them. Yeah. And I was making up great stories when they said, you haven't read any of these, have you? <laughs> and so I went home and I remember sitting on a landing in the house teaching myself how to read so I could get ice cream. Oh, wow. And then by third grade, I was reading like – I was flunking even reading because I was reading on such an – I wasn't reading what was, I was not reading Last Come Home. I wasn't reading what I was supposed to be reading. Right. I couldn't spell to save my life. Uh, I didn't understand grammar, but I was reading on you know everything I could lay my hands on. And and then when I met Len, I was in junior high school, so I was twelve, and we started going to New York almost immediately every week to watch movies. Mm-hmm. And when I was fourteen, I was also I was fanatic about popular culture, and so I was really into comic books. I was a comic book collector. Mm-hmm. When I was fourteen. I found that there was, in the town next to me lived a guy who was a comic book writer, not an artist, a writer, but he was like a major figure. And so out of nowhere, I wrote him and asked him, this is so unlike me, but I wrote him, see if I can interview him. For what, I have no idea. I mean, I wasn't writing for anybody. And he said, sure. And I went over there, and, and he became a mentor. His name was Otto Binder, and he wrote, for example, uh, much of the, many of the original Captain Marvels, yeah, those wow, comics. Wow. But also, like, all the weird Superman stuff in the 50s, like, mm-hmm. if you know Superman, Bizarro World and all, that's all Otto. I mean, and he, everybody knew him. So, and when I was a kid, I'd go to the very earliest comic book conventions with him. Yeah. And so we'd sit in the bar, and, like, Stan Lee would come by to chat, or oh, Jack nice. Kirby. Yeah. So my whole life, I was driven by passion. I would, And I was... I couldn't, I, I literally was, I read everything I could lay my hands on. I saw every movie I could see. I, I read it. I mean, I was just driven by, um, just, I wanted to know. Right. And so I was always learning. And, and I did, and said against this, I did terribly in school. Right. I had, I done dyslexic slightly. I like to say slightly. So <laughs> I, I don't want to brag that's really dyslexic. Yeah. But I would like take spelling tests when I was in elementary school. And the teacher would call my mom up to say, well, he got all 25 words wrong, but he put cephaline on the top, not spelling. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, and then Annette was like, you know, amazing. Yeah. So um, so academically, I was I disappointed my parents. I was always in a certain amount of pain because yeah. I wasn't doing well. On the other hand, I was going to New York to watch movies. Then I was hanging out with Otto and meeting all the comic book yeah. guys. Yeah. Then when I kind of got into rock and roll, I was already so used to going to New York. So I, I had a blessed childhood that I didn't know was. I was like probably in my 30s. Right. And I would always tell everybody how bad my childhood was. Right. And I was tell, explaining to somebody, you know, well, on Saturdays, Len and I would go see movies all day. And then Sundays, I'd hang out with Otto. And in the middle of kind of explaining this, I realized 
Yeah, yeah, there's a downside, but unless you went right. But what drove me was passion. Right. I didn't do stuff I didn't want to do, right. but I was, I was just when I got into something, I got fanatical about right. it. I want to know everything you can know. When I was um, probably 12 years old, we went to visit my uncle and my dad's brother, mm-hmm. and he gave me 25 cents to go buy comic books at the drugstore. And one of the ones I bought was Fantastic Four number three. Yeah. And in Fantastic Four number three, the human torch. I didn't know, this is the very beginning of Marvel, so I no Spider-Man yet, none of that. So I didn't even know what I was buying, but it looked interesting. And in the middle of Fantastic Four number three, they're in a flop house on, on the Bowery, yeah. and the human torch lights his finger and shaves this guy, who turns out to be the submariner. Okay. Who, and they make reference to 40s comic books. Okay. And I'm sitting there, and when I read this, I thought, there were comic books? And they're old comic books? Right. I mean, I can't even tell you what like a eureka moment that was. And so then I began reading everything I could find about comic books. And then when I met Otto, mm-hmm. who had been there through all, the, all of it, it was amazing. And then with Len, I was in love, I fell in love with news. I, the, the transitional moment, I was nine years old at this, my grandmother's house in Lakewood, New Jersey, in order to go out the back way, you had to go through her bedroom. She wasn't there because I couldn't stand her. And if she'd been there, we wouldn't. <laughs> but we spent summers there. She was far away. Mm-hmm. But um, on the t- TV was on, and there was a movie, and I climbed up on the bed to watch just a little bit of it. It was Frank Capra's Lost Horizon. I watched the whole film, and when I left that room, I was a film person. Wow. I mean, it was literally that kind of... The passion powerful. just hit you. It was like I just need them. I, I want to see more movies. Was it watching or was it like I want to start? Cre- did you want to? Start no, creating? I never wanted to. I, I I don't I don't have that. I didn't think I was capable of anything. Okay. So I really didn't think I could direct. Right. I just wanted to. I I I kind of knew I was an academic. And later it turned out I wasn't even a good academic. But um, I just wanted to know. I wasn't. I had so few skill sets. I. Uh, on tone deafs, I mean, you can't read my handwriting, much less draw. I'm totally not interested in sports, which alienated my dad no end. And, um, you know, I didn't, literally nothing I did looked like it would ever lead to anything. Right. So I was, you know, unhappy, but on the on one hand. But on the other hand, I was like on this quest that I didn't realize until much later. Yeah. And so, and, and it was amazing. when I mean, Len and I would go in the city... Around 14th Street, where the Strand Bookstore is now, but there used to be 40 used bookstores. It's yeah. called um, Book Row. By the time we were there, it was maybe 20. But we'd start there early in the morning because we'd go look at books. You know, we, we both read a lot. And then also, Len always had little film magazines. Mm-hmm. So he was. we would go to the place where you could buy movie stills because he was doing articles. So he had to find, you know, movie stills to go along. And we and, and Len and I could get very funny talking about all these different places. Mark Ricci, the Mexican bandit, but we won't... Um, but so we would go there. And one of the places we went was a place called Movie Star News, where, um, what was her name? Pauline Claude, I believe was her name, was very sweet, nicer than many of those people. And like many years later, Len sent me a clipping because what I didn't realize was uh, Movie Star News upstairs, her brother, Irvin Claude, was doing a Betty Page bondage photos. And I've always thought that if Len and I had taken a wrong turn, we would both be dead. I mean, we were the most naive kids from the suburbs possible. Mm-hmm. If we had come into Betty Page tied up, it would have been all over. <laughs> but we would start out at Book Row, and then we would go. There was a morning show at, at Museum of Modern Art, an afternoon show at the Honey Hartford, which was a museum on 59th Street, a late afternoon show at, back at MoMA at Museum of Modern Art, and then we might go see a commercial movie, and then we'd go to film societies. Wow. So we might come home at like one or two. You were just consuming 
And we were just consuming, and the city was safe. You know, I mean, we would be on a subway at two o'clock in the morning, drunks would fall in your lap. But one of the things you learn really quickly is to be invisible. You know, nobody's going to get in your face if you're not, you know. And so we had all these, you know, we saw amazing stuff. Then we met, and Len was always writing. Len, when Len, um, he sold his first TV movie books the summer that we graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. You know, I was collecting, you know, I was doing nothing. Um, and then he sold the book every year he was in college, a, a film history book. Mm-hmm. And so um, he was becoming more and more well-known. He always had the magazines. And so we would go over collector's houses to watch. I mean, we were having this insane childhood, which I just, you know, I, again, was depressed through, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which I think is a strength. Um but I was passionate and I got to do a lot of, I mean, you know, I really was driven. And yeah. so everything comes together when I come to UT and become a graduate film student. Suddenly, like, I'm writing for the Daily Texan, I'm writing on music and on film and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm succeeding academically. And then in 81, Nick and, and um, Joe came out starting the Chronicle and so we started that. And that was like going back into the, the, the you know, the whirlpool down for a while because it was like, there's no money. Right. You know, you tend to use up your friends not intentionally, but right. a lot of people leave not in the best emotional yeah, yeah, condition. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and it was it was painful. It was really, and, and the thing was that um, I think when I was younger, I, I wouldn't rarely finished anything. Right. And at a certain point, I was determined. Yeah. And so when I signed on to do something, I wasn't. I was there to make it happen. Right. And and I didn't have. I really like the lack of self worth. I can't because it sounds like cute. Right. But I really didn't think much of me. Right. Right. And so we would just. I just stayed at it. Mm-hmm. You know. And then it took ten years. The Chronicles started doing well. We started South by in eighties. We started talking about November of eighty six. We did the first one in eighty seven. So I want to I want to touch on that. So the purpose in your mind for the Chronicle was what? What is this? What is I was it was uh, you know was kind of I I was not I never thought it through. Right. I'm, uh, in in ways <laughs> in, in terms of like conceptualization and branding. Yeah. Well, I was very shocked to discover late in life that one of my strengths is branding. Um, because I understand what I'm doing even when I don't explain it to myself. Right. So the idea was to create a Village Voice kind of paper for Austin. Right. And we've been kind of doing some of that at the Daily Texan. Yeah. But this was like to be, move away from the university right. and to really create a quality paper for us. And although I'm not sure we would have articulated it that well. And so when we started it, it was every other week for a long time. And uh, the first issue was a disaster. Um, it's actually a very good issue in terms of content. The cover was a photo. Rocky Power Picture Show was big in Austin, one of the places where everybody, you know, come and dance along. And Richard O'Brien had a new movie coming out called Shock Treatment. And the cover's supposed to be one half of Richard O'Brien's face from Rocky Horror and one half from Shock Treatment. And our art director, Michael Priest, who just passed away recently, thought it'd be great to put a little bit of purple in each corner of each eye so they look demented. Except the way he wrote the descriptions was to leave a little bit of white in each eye and have the rest of the cover purple. So it, the, for a long time, the cover was not allowed in the office because it would send me in. I mean, we had done a, a certain amount of groundwork, right, not right, a lot, right, a certain right, amount. Right. And everybody said, forget it, it's another punk man, you know. Yeah, like, exactly. And, uh, and when, you, when I go back now and I look at the first year of the Chronicle, the, even that issue had great stuff in it. I mean, already the writing was really good, you know, but I, it took me several years to recover from the trauma of that first issue. And um, it really was. I mean, you know, and now I can look at the cover and uh, 
Yeah. But at one point, there were points probably I threw things through windows, but I was a little temperamental. Right. But but once we started, there was no stop. You know, we we're going to do it, and uh, it was really painful. And uh, and your vision changed because to begin with, you're like, I'm going to build this and sell it, or I mean, that's it. I, I thought I, I was like, you know, and I never thought of selling because I didn't think of what I did was being worth it. I thought we'd build it, and the logical people take it over, take it over. Yeah. I mean, we'd work with the daily text. Yeah. so we were kind of, you know, yeah. you know, we we came, then we left, other people came. Yeah. So we, uh, we, I conceptualized it badly. I thought I was going to leave. Got it. And then at a certain point, I realized I wasn't. Yeah. But uh, the second year when um, we had, were kind of trying to give it away and somebody had come in to be a publisher, and at a certain point we had a falling out. And at, at that point, Nick and I both realized we got the paper and that not any, not everybody else did. And, in fact, both of us got the paper in a way almost nobody else did. We understood what it was supposed to be. And both neither of us cared about making money. Yeah. Um, I think that's key because when you're following your passion, yeah. you're not really caring about making money. It'll all work out. But you're putting the quality, good writing, good content. Every time I've ever done anything to make money, it has been a disaster. Okay. As an early, as a kid early on, I, my roommate was dealing drugs and I got a block of hash. And selling that, I realized I was knocking out for retail um, <laughs> immediately. But it, yes, everything I've ever done, I did because I wanted to do it or it's the right thing to do or I think it needed to be done. Yeah. And even Zen, Zen Archery, I have never, ever looked at the target and thought we're going to make money and made money. You know, and, and, and the easiest way you can screw yourself up is by trying to make money. Yeah. And and it wasn't, fortunately, I felt worthless. Right. So it was great because I didn't. It, you set the bar low. Well, yeah, and I wasn't depriving myself of anything. I didn't, I mean, and, and, and so it was, it, it was traumatic. You know, at one point, like five, six, seven years into it, I went to lunch. I was friends with Greg Curtis, who was the editor of Texas Monthly at the yeah. time. And, and we were good friends, and we were at lunch, and I said, you would never hire me at Texas Monthly. And the, the reality is, as an editor, I can't spell. I don't understand grammar. I'm not a micro-editor. You know, I'm I'm, a, I'm kind of a, a visionary or a macro-editor. Right. And, and he goes, no. I mean, it's like, what? Yeah, I'm fortunate with hire you. There's nothing you can do. And I wasn't even a good writer at that point. And and I, I expected, I mean, it wasn't like, yeah, it was yeah. exactly what I thought. Mm-hmm. And I really think, I mean... Somebody said to me once, you know, wouldn't it be great if you never failed because you'd be fearless? I said, no, what's great is when you always fail because then nobody can stop you. That's right. Because that's, that's what you expect. That's when you're fearless. It's like, yeah, it, it, it's a matter of fact, failure. It's just, I actually was doing a podcast last week with some scientists from Austria, and uh, they, his, I loved his comment. It was like, I don't like to look at things as failure. They're all opportunities. And it's just like, you, know, you think about how scientists do things. They're always testing things. And it's not considered a failure in the science world. It's just a test. And then you move forward. Same thing in business. And Many know. years later, I came to the realization that there was no failures. Right. It was just opportunities. Exactly. Seriously. Yeah. But it took me a long time to get there. Yeah. And it is. It's like, I used to think if somebody left, it would be the end of the paper. And they would leave. And it was an opportunity. New people would come in and things would, would change. And it was like... You know, I, I was suddenly running the thing. Joe was going to run it, and he left after a year and became a very successful film producer, produced a lot of interesting films. But suddenly Nick and I were in charge, and it was um, – and I had none of the skills that you needed to – and I learned on the go, right. usually by doing things awkwardly and badly. Yeah. But I was driven by passion. I mean, I literally um, was I, – I was I, – I really – there was a drive to make this the paper I wanted to read. Yeah. And and uh, and in the early days, it was amazing. We had no money, and I'd fire writers 
Right one time, three writers came into me to tell me that we really weren't paying enough, and I said, and they were freelance. But I said, that's great because I goodbye because yeah. I was thinking they weren't good enough. Right. I mean, and, and I, what I expected people to do was to was had to do with my vision that I didn't even understand was a vision. Right. You know, I mean, it really was um, pedal to the metal kind of exactly. um, obsession. Yeah. And, uh, and a lot of mental disease I think, right. too. But, you know, and so, and then when, you know, after about 10 years, when the Chronicles started doing well, it was great because Nick and I both felt the same way, right. which was the responsibility was to put in the best paper possible and to take care of the staff yeah. and worry about other things later on. And we had a, you know, 15, 18-year run that was great. So you were in survival mode for a while, and oh. then it started doing really well. I read your last column, I guess, <laughs> last year, where you were talking about how, you know, at one point, you know, H-E-B, because of okay. whatever it is... To, Threw everything out out of HEB because of, of some... Mark Weaver was an anti-porn activist. Yeah. And he went out to H- We were distributing HEB. And he went to HEB and he said, look, they have, you know, HIV positive males seeking HIV positive. And, you know, you shouldn't encourage this kind of stuff. I think if any housewife had protested, they would have thrown us out. Right. But Mark protested. And actually, ironically, I thought that was one of our contributions to the community. Right. You know, he wanted people... To to to, to um, be honest and upfront and deal with each other. Yeah. But we got thrown out, and Mark went around to all the radio and TV stations and got a ton of publicity. And then we were carried like at Texaco and places like that. We paid a guy to distribute us there, and he called them up basically and said, "You know, they just been thrown out of HEB. Do you still want to distribute them?" And you can imagine, of course not. Right in the middle of this, Nick and I made one decision, and the decision was, "This HEB has every right to throw us out." We, we resent Mark. We resent the community not getting to make these decisions. But we're not going to attack HB. They have right. every right to throw us out. And, and at that point, I went to um, France with my, my wife. Um, you know, and, and I thought when I came back, paper would be gone. Right. And remember, this is like when you were in France, you didn't communicate. Right. You know, we didn't have cell phones. You know, I mean, you just didn't know. So I thought it was going to die, and I was ready. It was like eight or nine years. I'd made very little money. I was worn out. Um, and and I, I didn't know what I was going to do. But, you know, and we got back and we went to Whole Foods back when it was on Lamar, uh, where the, I don't I know, it was a Goodwill. I don't even know. I think it's still a Goodwill. But we, and we're going there shopping and two different people come up to me and say, congratulations. And I had no idea why. And, and one of the things about communication is, the world was so different in terms of what you knew. I mean, people now, they go to college and talk to their parents every day. You mm-hmm. know? I tell my parents like once or twice a month. But in terms of like, now I would know everything because I would have been, you know, then with, you know, dial phones and, and some people would come around and I didn't know why it turned out that we had been let back into HEP. And, I, um, and, I, and people had spontaneously protested. I mean, people had like, Gotten together and picketed, right, right, for us. Yeah, no, that's that's an amazing experience. It was, was an amazing that. experience, and and the wildest part of it was, we were putting out a great paper. I mean, we had so many good writers. We cared. We were politically engaged. We were certainly culturally engaged. We we're totally focused on Austin music. Yeah. I mean, we might not review the new Grateful Dead album, but we covered everything that was being released locally. And we, we we had a vision, and I think that we had a readership, but no, they didn't know it. Right. I mean, everybody kind of thought we were like the punk street thing. Exactly. And all of a sudden, for a couple of weeks, all anybody was talking about was the Chronicle. Wow. And so about, and I don't really know. This is a made-up figure. Some period of time later, could have been months, it could have been a year, um, 
suddenly advertising took off and just kept growing because I think people started realizing, wait, my audience reads this paper. Yeah. And we should advertise it's in it. It's kind of his best kept secret. Yeah. Yeah. And and Mark had given us this amazing gift. And um and at the same time, people had always come to us and said, you know, you can make money doing this and barely it didn't work. But one of the other papers that started doing telephone personals where, you know, you, you paid something and you called up and left personal messages. And they had come to us and we said, okay, well, and, and that began actually making money. Plus, we suddenly started selling advertising. And around, so this is about 1991, suddenly things ha- began happening. Wow. If we were putting out the best paper possible, fun. at one point when we went weekly, finally in like 88, mm-hmm. um, another paper, which had been a monthly Austin downtown and started became the Austin Weekly. Yeah. They had more money than we did. I mean, they had a lot more. So they had boxes and they had color covers and more pages. And I walked into Nick's office and I was hysterical. and said, what are we going to do? They have boxes. They have color covers. They have more pages than we do. And Nick looked at me and he said, I think we'll do what we always done. We're going to put out the best chronicle possible. Love it. And then $2 million and three years later, they were gone. Wow. I love the... The part of what you just said, you were actually grateful to Mark for what he did. Because oh, absolutely. At the end of the day, so many times we, we, we look at a failure yeah. or, oh, my God, this is a, a something that is going on in my business or career or whatnot. And it's like so uncomfortable. But then it turns out to be a blessing. I was I went to lunch with my son recently and he said, OK, if you could redo your youth, what would you do differently? And I was really unhappy. I mean, I can tell you the stories now. It was amazing. Incredible things. But I was pretty unhappy. I said nothing. Because I have no idea. I know that all that, any misery I had in the beginning contributed to where I am now. And I wouldn't be any other, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, I get rid of this. Because who the hell knows what makes you who you are? Exactly. You know, literally, I was in um, the Netherlands giving a talk at something. And and the boyfriend of the woman who was running things would work with attention deficit disordered children. Mm Mm-hmm. I think I, I have AD, uh, attention deficit disorder. It's not a deficit. It's not a disorder. It's a different way of paying attention. Exactly. And it certainly has paid off for me. I right. mean, it's a totally different way of paying attention. And I and I thank that I have it. It's exactly. been amazing. And and I think we find lots of entrepreneurs have it. Yep. It's a different way of paying attention. But he was telling me how, you know, how great they were with the kids now and all the stuff they do. And one point I looked at him and said, I'm not sure you're doing the right thing. Because maybe it's better... For them to have, to have how hard exactly. it is, yeah. You know, in a way, if I had, I when I came up, I was I wasn't even ADD. I was um, an underachiever, right. which kind of meant you you were probably you were lazy and stupid. It definitely meant you were lazy, and so uh, and I wasn't even one of the underachievers. They thought could achieve a lot of. I you did. were just labeled. I was just la- and and it was a blessing. Yeah. You know, I I mean I failed at a lot of things, yeah. and again at the time I would have changed out. It was a science fiction story, a uh, comic book story, where like a guy, you know, aliens leave like a pod behind. In terms of you go in there, you become exactly who you want to be. I used to dream about that happening so I could like play sports. And thank God it didn't. Um, you know, literally that that misery that it was, you know, was was the fuel for everything that happened. The life path you had. And, 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 and again, very few people have gotten to do what I've gotten to do right. and enjoyed it as much because yeah. I, I got it. You know, I, didn't expect, I had no expectations. Yeah. And, uh, and so it was great. When you're talking about directing, when I was a graduate film student, I decided to, we were going to make a film one, like a basic undergraduate, mm-hmm. because I think, thought if I'm going to write about film and study film, no film. So I wrote it and produced it. I got everything together. And I was doing it with two friends. One of them was shooting it. And so the first day we were all set up and the, my friend Ned Lowry who's doing it with me. He says, okay, where do you want the camera? This is the very first shot. 
And I just stood there and I thought, I have no idea, nor do I care. I'm not a director. And uh, he directed it. And I was happy with it. And I never wanted to be a director. I mean, which is, you know, I, I wanted to be a rock star. <laughs> but I never wanted to be, because I, I knew I didn't have the chops. Right. Which is ironic, because later on I co-directed a Linkletter doc. And now I'm going to co-direct some other films. But because I know what I can and can't do. Yeah, yeah knowing, knowing what you're, you're gifted at. One of the early things that was, I was very good at was knowing what I could and couldn't do. And I knew what I couldn't do. So you hire people who could do it or you created it. I mean, you know, really was, uh, I could probably write a book on success now because I backed into everything. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, and when I, you know, literally I never, if I couldn't do it, I didn't pretend, I didn't have any ego. I couldn't do it. Right. I, at an early point, I realized like the, everything I do was kind of like a Roadrunner cartoon. Like I would go <laughs> off the cliff. Yeah. And uh, sometimes, amazingly, I'd run in the air for a long time. And sometimes you'd fall. You weren't going to die. Yeah. As soon as I forget, you weren't going to die. And <laughs> the worst thing was having you're going to lose money. I had none. Or be embarrassed. I was always embarrassed. So, I love that. And, but, that mental image. I talk about entrepreneurism and jumping off a cliff and bearing, uh, building a parachute on the way down. But I love the roadrunner. Road you know, I hit the ground a number of times. And then after a while, I used that example. But after a while, I didn't hit the ground very I mean, more often than not, we had these crazy ideas. Yeah. And because it was an extraordinary community. You know, I was always lucky as to who I got to work with. Tell me about South by Southwest, because now, how, how how many years is it? 30, uh, 87 is the first one. So um, so the New Music Seminar in New York was the big deal. And Roland Swenson, who had worked for a record label when it went under, he was working for the Chronicle, went up there, and he was very high on it. And the guys came about starting a regional branch. And thank God for cocaine, because they didn't. Um, <laughs> and so Roland Swenson, who worked at the Chronicle, and Lewis Myers, who's managed bands, came to Nick and I one day and said, why don't we start a, a, a regional conference? And my first reaction was no. Shows how smart I am. Because um, we were still, we still hadn't gone weekly. And we were, um, and our cash flow was horrible. And I was terrified that we would be biting off more than we could chew. Yeah. But at a certain point, one, I began to get the idea. But more importantly, they suggested to Nick that the last day of this event could be um, a softball tournament. Yeah. And so I knew I was dead in the water. I mean, Nick getting a chance to play softball, who, even though, you know, he was going to do that. He loves sports. So uh, so early on, I said, fine. But I did, if you, if you, anybody says I said no at first, yes, I said no. And then early on, and so this is like around November of 1986, we okay. decided to do it. And then basically it's a lot of me and Lewis Myers and, and Nick and Roland sitting. And Roland was kind of the visionary yeah. who really got it. But sitting around a room talking about what it would be. And it was going to be for only five states. It was regional. It's called South by Southwest because it was just going to be Texas and Colorado and Louisiana. I can't remember. And we're sitting there trying to come up with a name. And I'm thinking of North by Northeast, the Hitchcock. And I said, what about South by Southwest? And Roland on the piece of paper writes SXSW, like within a minute. And it was like, okay. That's it. That's it. And, and it was a concept and... You know, and, and part of it was the notion... We were very punk. And the whole notion is there's no difference between who's on stage and who's in the audience except for that foot and a half, that the stage. And that you learn best from, you know, the 
like we started paying in 81, like 85 or 86, we had gone to the, there was Alternative News Weekly's convention and we went. I love to tell the story. Like it was in Maine and we flew into Boston and drove up to Maine. And like before we went in, like they, we were in t-shirts and torn jeans, and stuff, but I had a, a button shirt. So I took it, it was wrinkled and everything, but I took it out because I looked good. And we walk in and it's mostly like ad reps and publishers and they're all really well-dressed. And I looked at Nick and I said, well, we've met the future and as usual, we're not well-dressed. Um, <laughs> But we learned stuff there. I mean, and and actually, and we didn't get in. We applied for membership. We didn't get in. And rather than going, cursing them, we said, that's right. Let's get better. And we worked our asses off and got in the next year. And eventually became one of, you know, one of the most successful papers in the organization. But it was really like, you know, when people were criticized, criticized stuff, you didn't get mad. Well, sometimes you did. But I mean, you made it better. Yeah. I mean, the iron, the, the great... The sweetest thing is when people tell you you can't do it and you do it. Yeah. And I've had a life where people again and again have told me you couldn't do it. Yeah. And I've done it. And, I'm, and, and it's, it's been because it's, it's been the, the cool or the right thing to do. Mm. So we agreed to do South by. And, and, we, and we remember, like, we had never done anything like this. You know, I mean, we hadn't put it on a convention. Mm-hmm. Um, we just we sent people letters. We'd call up, like, record company execs to ask if they would be on a panel. And, uh, and at the end, if they said yes, then you have an expense account. Can you, you know, registration only forty dollars? Can you buy one? But so the other notion was so one was no difference between the audience and who's on stage, and the other was you learn best from other people. You know that you know, especially people who are working in it. So those were the two premises, and we did the first one in March of '87, and we thought maybe three hundred people would show up, and seven hundred people showed up, yeah. and. Um, and then it just worked. I mean, at the end of that month, I had money in my pocket for the first time since we started the Chronicle. Not a lot, yeah. but, you know, a couple of bucks. And um, and as I like to say, euphemistically, we started South by the cash flow of the Chronicle. Mm-hmm. There was no cash flow. I mean, you know, we could barely pay our bills. Yeah. But we started with no money. But the, it, was a, it was an idea, and we were passionate about it, and we spent an enormous amount of time talking about every detail. And then... The, and then um, and after the first one, we didn't say, okay, let's do that again. We said, how can we do it better? Yeah. And we spent an incredible amount of time talking through everything. Nick Barbaro, there's nothing Nick Barbaro loves more than a six-hour meeting is a seven-hour meeting. And I'm like a seven-minute meeting. You know, I know that. I'm like, can we go now? You know, and but and, and in a way, all these different talents, Lewis Myers had run clubs, been in bands, you know, book bands. Roland just had a certain visionary thing, plus the entrepreneurial but the four of us together were very different people, but we turned out to be a great team. And so we started South by, and fairly early on, it became apparent it was going to work. I didn't know this. I was like the third, and I can tell you stories, but like the third or fourth year, I was at a swimming pool or a hotel, and I was apologizing to somebody. And they looked at me and said, are you like crazy? <laughs> this is the best experience all year. Nice. And I always... I, I just focus on what's not working. Yeah. Because that's my responsibility is to make right. that work. Yeah. I wrote a, a column once on, uh, about, do not tell me to relax before South by. I want to wake up at three in the morning and go over everything again in my head because I would rather not sleep produce than have something go wrong. Produce the highest quality content it, it, or, or production. or. And that was always, it was never about making money. It was really, it was about serving the audience and doing the best job possible. And so we really, I mean, and we, we loved the music. We really cared about it. We loved that energy, that interaction. I mean, early on, I remember we did a panel on signed and dropped because everybody thought you got signed and then you were in heaven. 
So we did the panel, what happens when you get signed and drop that it doesn't happen. And and it was really, um, it was an incredible experience. Yeah. It was, um, it was a lot of work, but unlike the Chronicle, it, you kind of knew it was working early on. I, I mean, I didn't, but everybody else did. Um, well, when you have th- 700 in your first show expecting 300, I mean, it's... It was, it was, yeah, and then it was like, and it just kept growing. And Do you have an idea what, what the numbers are now? Oh, if, uh, tens of thousands, I really don't know. I mean, because now, one, they've tried to integrate everything. I'm not as involved as I used to be, yeah. and... Um, and they try and integrate everything together. I mean, I know, like, you know, tens of thousands come and then hundreds of thousands come to Austin. Right. You know, the numbers are probably amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm just not on top of them. Yeah. But, it w- but it wasn't even the numbers. It was that we began to, in- you could see the influence. In fact, yeah. Um, you could really see, like, one, um, when Roland said, why don't we get papers like ours to co-sponsor? So I reached out to 14 papers in the, those states and got them to co-sponsor. And um, they ran ads. What I didn't really think through is they, most of them also sent somebody. I mean, which, I mean, Roland's smarter than I am. But, uh, and so the, all these guys who wrote about rock showed up and they picked up the Chronicle and they said, wait, they're writing about Austin music. They're not writing about the Rolling Stones or the Grateful Dead. Why don't we write about our local bands? Yeah. And if you look at what happens now, and it's the whole DIY thing is happening, but and 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 more and more of of the writers, both with weeklies and the slicks, would come to Austin, and there was this you know thing where we were covering the music, and early on we had Michael Corcoran writing a music column who was making fun of the music. So not only were we covering local music, but we were you know insulting. It. I mean, I think I think people came and they won. I think. Many of them thought they had died and gone to Disneyland heaven for rockers because you came to Austin and there was barbecue and there was uh, Mexican food and there were boots and cowboy hats and amazing music. In the early days, I used to say people would ask, and I said, well, I think Southwest Southwest succeeded because anybody can get laid in Austin, Texas. But then they asked me to stop saying that. Um, so then I said the pot was cheap and they shut that down too. Um, but it was an amazing experience because... What we cared, we got that it was Austin. Yeah. The most important thing, I mean, we're talking entrepreneurial. One is to be care about what you're doing, and 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 if it's going to fail, you're gonna you're gonna go to you're gonna die okay. I mean, the Sam Peck was one of my favorite directors, and the family motto was to enter your house justified. At the end of your days, you done what you're supposed to do, and that was the goal. That was, you know, I want to enter my house justified, and so we were we like loved. The music we loved, and and it was amazing to watch stuff happen, and then incredible things would happen. And one early on, people said who was signed, and we never in the earliest we would never say anything because it's rare that somebody walks in and sees an act and signs them. Right. That happened. Right. But sometimes they would have been following an act for a while. They signed him at South by because it was good publicity, mm-hmm. or they started watching him at South by and followed him. Yeah. But we let the acts claim that. So suddenly our names began popping up in a lot of places. It wasn't us, it was them. Right. And then the other thing was, it was amazing, was suddenly March became a month that new albums got released. Wow. Because they so coincided with yeah. that. You know, and it was like, okay. You know, really and it was, but the bottom line was, um, we loved the music. And, and Brent Grilke, who died a few years ago, and I think certainly, you know, it was one of the saddest things. But Brent, Brent Lewis Myers, 
I tell these stories awkwardly. Louis Myers, who ran the music festival, left after the first six or seven years. It just he had to turn down too many bands, and right. he was kind of overwhelmed. And, and our friend Brent Berkeley, who had been a music editor at the Chronicle, who we known, took over. And Brent really was an amazing person, and uh, and and ran the mu- music festival for years and years. But like two days after South by, I would go to Waterloo because. You know, we've just succeeded. What am I going to do? Yeah. Buy more records. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 almost always Brent would be there too because that's what the reward was. Yeah. You know, and, and um, and it was, so it was an ex- incredible experience. And then that evolved to beyond music and to film. Well, we always decided we wanted to do film mm-hmm. and um, because we were film guys. I mean, literally, you know, Nick and I had met as graduate film students. So we wanted to do film and we thought we'd have a little boutique film festival. And so 93 was the first year we did it and we met a guy named... Dewey Winburner said, you know, you should do it on new media as well, interactive. And and it was CD-ROMs, you know. Whole, yeah. So he did a track on CD-ROMs and we did a track on film. And then next year we just did interactive, became its own event. But so we did film. And the first year, I remember the, the statesman, where the music creator was not a fan of mine for certain reasons, you know, said, oh, well, you know, you look at the lineup, it looks like the Friends of Lewis Black. And I thought... Well, that's the idea, and they weren't all friends. I mean, it was Toby Hoover did Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Michael Nesmith who produced Repo Man, and happily, most of them ended up becoming good friends. Yeah, but we had we thought we'd do a little boutique. You yeah. know, there were five hundred film festivals. Right, and we kind of hadn't really thought through that Rick Linkletter was in town because this is already ninety four, and Rick Linkletter's already becoming Rick Linkletter. And Rick's amazing. Not only is he a great filmmaker, but he's a catalyst. He stays very involved. In the, he doesn't leave town after Slacker. Stays very involved in the community. Loves to promote independent filmmaking. And is really admired by young coming up filmmakers. Yeah. Slacker inspired so many people. And so Rick's in town. And so 98 or 99, I'm, we're having a party at my house. And I look around and it's uh, Steven Soderbergh, Kevin Smith, Robert Rodriguez, Rick Linkletter, Quentin Tarantino, um, uh, Quentin Guillermo del Toro. I mean, you know, and, and I had two thoughts, one of which is if the roof caves in, American independent film is in very bad shape. Yeah. But then the one that's most indicative of me was, well, what the hell are we going to do next year? Right. I mean, this is great, but next year we're going to look like yeah. fools because we can't match this. You know, and, it's, and it took off. I mean, and it was, again, we, it, we cared so much. Yeah. And, and which made it a privilege. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, literally I've done, life has been really, really kind to me. Yeah. But if, if, uh, if certain things hadn't worked out, I'd still be pretty okay. Well, what I think is is cool is the way you see life. Um, I saw something online you see it all the time. It's like building a business is hard. Life is hard. You know, if you keep your vision saying that that's what it is, and you don't see that life is actually easy or kind or that kind, it's just the attitude that you actually pay attention to. When I edited the Linkletter doc. And I, and this just brought it into relief. I realized, like, early on, 5%, 2% worked and 98% didn't. Towards the end, like, 95% worked and 5% didn't. And I thought it was a disaster because I was focused on what didn't work. Yeah. And in, in 2011, I almost died. I congestive heart failure. I went in the hospital. And, um, and I never stopped to look at what I was doing. So if you had asked me, I would tell you that I failed because yeah. all the things I thought I should do that I didn't do or the things I didn't do as well as I wanted. Yeah. And then kind of when I came out and 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 people began treating me really well, which I didn't expect. Yeah. I mean, I was used to people hating me as the editor of the Chronicle. And like, you know, people wanted me to consult on films or come talk to me. And it was, and it took five years. I mean, this is, a, it, it is I'm still in this process of kind of, 
um, coming to terms with this other Louis Black who seems to be hanging out with me, mm. who people have feelings for that I don't. But um, And it was really bizarre. I mean, it was so completely bizarre. Because up until then, I was just driven. And, and, uh, and I was scared to death, always, yeah. you know. And, um, and I was worried about the next project and doing it right. Yeah. And I was worried about taking care of the people we were doing it with. And when I stopped to look around, it was like, you know, thank God I hadn't looked around earlier. I would have fallen. I think it's amazing that you start off with a concept and now, you know, 30 years later, companies launch at South by Southwest. It's not just music. It's not just film. It's startups come and launch at this event because you got so many people there. So it's just. Well, yeah. And, and like, you know, when, uh, uh, what's it? Um, Twitter. When Twitter, that, yeah, Twitter. Twitter. They launched at South by. Did they? Yeah, it was a big deal. What I'm really proud of, though, is where you two people met online and went and made a film or formed a group. There's I, I wish I remembered the guy's name. There's a guy who'd been in a group and it, it had been kind of successful, but it had fallen apart and he was waiting online for something. And there's a group of young kids who were very hot and the band was very hot and everything they started talking and he came back. Nice. That's the, I mean, those are the stories. Yeah. I mean, film, you know, the money thing, that's okay. And launching, okay. What I, it's, it's about creativity and it's about how we work together. And I really have a hard time now because, you know, it's very, it, being um, cynical is very cool. And, and, and I have the problem of most of my life, I watch people say, I want to do this. And the ones who stuck to it, not all of them, and some of them, fate was cruel to some of them, but most of them, they're doing extraordinary things because they, they were determined to do it. You know, watching Rick Linkletter come into his own, you know, he was, you know, he, he does, the first thing he does is you can't learn to plow by reading books. And, um, and it, he basically, he would put the camera, turn it on, turn the sound on his belt and then go act in front. I mean, he was teaching himself how to make a film and it was a feature yeah. and he wanted to make sure he could do a feature. And that's his first film. And I was interviewing Kevin Smith for the doc on Rick and Kevin goes, we're both comic book guys from New Jersey. And so we're, we get along. So he goes, wow, I thought you got to see Plow when Rick first met, made it. And I'm like, well, no, I didn't. And then I was, the next time I saw him, this is a, how petty a human being can be. And I was, I was, Did you screen Plow when you first made it? And he said, no. I, he said, I edited it using Austin Cablevision facility. So I had to promise him a couple of screenings. Yeah. You know, and I, but I didn't really screen it, and I, and I think I probably presented the first real screening at the first South by Southwest because mm-hmm. I was looking for films. But I know people have made the lamest first film or the worst first novel or the first, and they want you to listen to it endlessly or watch it. And Rick didn't even show it. Huh. Next film was Slacker, which I'm in, thank God, because he asked if I would be in it. And at that point, I had done a couple of films, and they were tedious and not fun. And again, I'm like, I'm so. I thought, well, Rick's not a filmmaker. He's a film programmer because he's lost in film society at that point. And he programmed films. I thought, he's not a... But that day, I said, oh, I said, what? and he remembered the story. I didn't. I said, what's the role? And he said, paranoid newspaper reader. I said, <laughs> well, I'm perfect for that. Nobody's more paranoid than I am. Yeah. But thank God I went and I showed up. And uh, I'm, I'm, so I have I made seven seconds in a slacker. And when he gave it to me, um, this story I've told so many times, but... I, I watched it I, VHS and I fast forward because I love long takes and I knew it was long takes, but I, I and I watched my parts mm-hmm. a couple of times, but I didn't think about it. And then um, a writer wrote something for the Chronicle, which we started on the cover, the, and I read it. and I thought, wait, this film's about something. I thought it was just my friends, yeah. so I had to watch it again. And I really I liked it, but I didn't get it until Days and Confused. When I watched Days and Confused, I remember sitting there thinking. 
oh, he's a serious filmmaker. That you could see the similarities. And even later than that, where I, I love those movies, but late in the game, I remember thinking, you know, and it was never familiarity breached contempt. Was, I was always a fan. But I remember thinking one day, shit, you know, if I, I'm sorry, if I didn't know Rick Linkletter, he would be one of my favorite directors. Mm. You know, if you ask me mm-hmm. who I'm, I feel, I, my, you know, kind of, I was lucky I saw it. In 1976, at a drive-in, I saw Caged Heat, which was Jonathan Demme's first film that blew me away. And a few years later, I sent him a fan letter and some academic stuff I'd written on him. And we became very good friends from 81 until he died in two years ago. And, um, and, and I think Rick and Jonathan are, are very similar in terms of their career in that every project they did, they took it on its own terms, and they're not that similar. You know, if you look at Jonathan's films, uh, Signs of the Lambs, uh, Melvin and Howard, Stop Making Sense, you, you, if you watch them all, you wouldn't say, oh, I know that's the same director. I mean, you, you know, right. and the same thing with a lot of Rick's stuff. And so when I say Rick's one of my favorites, I mean, Jonathan's clearly, well, we were so tight and I lived through so much of that. But those two guys I know, and, and they're probably my favorite directors because what marks their stuff is their passion and the fact that they take every, the material on its own terms. That's incredible. And... Just I could just sit here for hours and chat with you. <laughs> this is this has I can been go on this for is hours this is this has been uh, wonderful. Sure. Um, truly a master of craft and and a long life of just kind of doing things and and, and keep continuing to improve and really appreciate you sharing. I've been story. you know people say give me a lot of credit. I deserve some of it. I'm not trying. To, a lot of it was luck. Was, oh no no not yeah. luck. Luck without. Um, and without knowledge and without the skill and without devotion is meaning, but it, a lot of it's luck. Right. But more importantly than anything, I function in a community for 30 years now yeah. where they care about the work. Yeah. There are not music politicians right. or film politicians. Like, I mean, LA, that's what, LA is low, lateral, New York, Nashville. It, I was talking with Rick Linkletter about this the other night at dinner, and it was like, we we can name the two guys who tried to film politics. You know, they didn't care about the work; they cared about power and prestige and the glory. Exactly. And they didn't last because yeah. this is a community where what have you done? Right. And it's not like what have you done lately. It's what have you done? And if you come up, if you come and you have chops, yeah. you know, if you're a great songwriter, now you have to be a pretty damn great songwriter to be noticeable yeah. in a town that is lousy with yeah. amazing songwriters. Exactly. Or you're a good filmmaker. Everybody wants to know about it. Yeah. You know, I, I, at one point. Um, they invited the, the film editor of the Chronicle to book people where they blindfolded them and took them someplace and burned me in effigy um, because I'm, you know, I had suppressed their talents, which one is kind of weird. And I told them, why didn't you tell me I would have followed them and that could have shown up? But it was like, we didn't, you know, there have been talents that we haven't liked. We've written bad reviews. Right. We live for that moment that something excites us, exactly. you know, and then we, and when you call each other, you know, I mean, I, you know, one of the great things about Jonathan was, and he was turning me on stuff. I was turning on. I was coming out of a Randall's on Lake Elston Boulevard, and the phone rang. And I thought it was my wife complaining about me having forgotten something. And it was Jonathan who finally listened to the Daniel Johnston stuff I had been giving him. And I had to stand there with one arm, like for the grocery bag. Finally, I put it down for a half an hour before he took a breath as he was telling me how amazing Daniel was. Wow. And that's what you live for. Yeah, that you live. You live for that passion, and you live to work with other people who have that passion. And I'm serious, you know. I'm, I can be as cynical as the next guy. I've seen some, you know, horrible things. I've experienced precious few of them living in Austin. Yeah. You know, more often than not, I've watched people come together. Somebody needs help, everybody's there. Yeah. Somebody needs support, everybody's there. Um, you know, it's a, you need to do a benefit 
some it used to be a phone, couple of phone calls because our friends were at radio stations, the yeah, Chronicle, yeah. and it's and and you're there because you recognize that it's collaborative and it's cooperative and it's community. And I used to do this, and I wanted more C words, but it's also passion, right. which is not a literate word, but it's passion. And it really, and knowledge. I mean, one of the things I loved about Austin was always that if you were in film and music, you were expected to know the past. Yeah. You were expected to know who Rocky Erickson right. was or Stevie Ray Vaughan. You know, you were engaged in the future and you had a responsibility. I mean, you were engaged in the present and you had a responsibility to the future. Right. Well, after Slacker, Rick keeps the film society going so people can see films. Yeah. You know, we start, he calls me up in the late 90s and goes, you know, there's no longer any federal or state funding for the arts. Let's start the Texas Filmmakers Production Fund. We'll raise money and we'll give it away to, yeah. to filmmakers. And it was like, of course. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I get it, it's an ugly world out there and we have a crazy president and we have an irresponsible Congress. I'd lived in a, in a very special cocoon for a long time yeah. where um, to this day I wake up and it's like, what's today's, you know, and actually in the last... I was telling something, you know, whenever I'm looking this direction, something else happens. And over the last six months, a couple of things have happened that have been unexpected and wonderful. Right. And uh, and always because of the community. Yeah. And I know I when I, I, I tour with films usually, I go to film fest, and they'll ask me to talk about Austin. And about this point, I'll stop and say, I, I, I get that you think I'm full of it, that I'm lying, that, you know, they, they, they're they sleeping with animals or, you know, right. shooting up strange drugs or stealing from each other. But the reality is it's even better. I mean, you know, I, they may be doing all those things, not on my time. Um, it's the joy we get in the music community and the film community seeing each other. And we don't see each other a lot anymore because we're usually working. Yeah. And, you know, the other night I went to dinner with Charlie Sexton, who's Bob Dylan's band leader and does the Austin Music Awards, so that's in Alejandro Escovedo. And we just sat there telling stories. And we all felt the same way, which is we've been blessed beyond reason yeah. that we got to be part of this community. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I uh, really gained, I know our audience gained a lot of uh, knowledge from your experience. And uh, I'm looking forward to this year's South by Southwest and I'll continue to t- chat with you and get to know you more. Great. And I'm looking forward to it too. I'm not as involved, so it's more of a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Sure. I could have kept talking to Lewis for hours. Thank you, Lewis, for sharing your journey with us and I'm so inspired by your passion and your obsession with good music, film, and culture. Austin is a better place because you are here. The Masters and Founders team includes me, Dan Dillard, producer Mariah Gossett, and audio engineer Jake Wallace. Also, thank you everyone at Founding Austin for your support. Want to connect with other Masters and Founders fans? Make sure you are a member of our Facebook group. The link is in the show notes. And our user reminder to share the show with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes to help others find the show. Thanks for listening.